One night a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was sound asleep in bed, um, and there was a loud knocking at the front door that woke me up. And so I threw some clothes on, looked through the window, and saw one of my neighbors. So I opened the window and said, hey, Phyllis, what's going on? She says, I know, I'm sorry, I know you were probably asleep, uh, but I need your help. My daughter just got here from Atlanta with her four kids. We don't have any food in the house. Can you loan me 40 bucks so I can go to the store and get some food for them? Uh, now, I had seen Phyllis a couple of days before this, and she had told me that her daughter was coming. Her daughter was fleeing a violent husband uh, and finally was taking steps to remove herself and the kids from that situation and move to Lexington to be with her mum. Uh, and, uh, and I knew all this, and when Phyllis was telling me the situation, I'm like, Phyllis, you knew she was coming, you knew what time the bus would get here, you knew you didn't have any food, why didn't you come over this afternoon and ask me for money to buy food or see if we had any? What I said to Phyllis was, of course, Phyllis, hang on a sec, let me go get you 40 bucks. Um, because Phyllis doesn't always plan ahead. And hungry kids are hungry kids, no matter whose they are. And Phyllis does not have access to the financial system that I imagine every single person in this room does. She does not have a checking account. She does not have a credit card. She does not even have a rainy day fund so that if she needs food right now, she can't just go to the store to get food. Um, if she needs to get to the store, um, Kroger is at least two bus journeys away from us, including a transfer downtown. Um, Phyllis doesn't have access to all the things that make it easy to get food when you need food. And what she does have access to in our neighborhood is a bunch of uh, payday loan places uh, where if she could go get that $40 uh, that would quickly turn to $240 if she didn't pay it back. Um, but Phyllis also has access to us uh, because she's our neighbor. I mean, literally, she lives half a block away from us. And we are neighbors probably with $40 in the house. And we are neighbors who Phyllis knows she can knock and wake me up because I didn't answer my phone because I turned my phone off uh, when she needs money or something else. Neighbors um, who have, for the past seven years, slowly been becoming friends, unlikely friends, perhaps, to a lot of folk looking in, but becoming friends nonetheless. Neighbors who are trying to figure out how to be faithful to this way of Jesus that is described in the Gospels, in the reflections that Paul makes on the Gospels, and in the faithful lives of people in the church for the last 2,000 years. Friends who find ourselves compelled by and repelled at the same time by the stories that Jesus tells about this kind of friendship. Stories like we find in Luke chapter 16, and Dr. Marwan is going to come and read that for us this evening. Let's stand as we listen to the gospel. So from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? 
I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus spends a lot of time in Luke's gospel talking about money. I mean, a lot of time. Have you read Luke's gospel recently? It's hard to turn a page and not find some kind of reference to wealth or money or property or stuff. I'm pretty sure that Jesus talks about money in front of the crowds far more than many of us talk about money, at least those of us who stand in pulpits or on platforms on the weekend to proclaim the written word. Perhaps we will talk about money in January if United Methodists during stewardship season, maybe even stretching that out for two or three weeks. Um, Perhaps we'll talk about money if we're going to offer some kind of financial advice as a study or a small group to look at financial wisdom, how to get out of debt, that kind of thing. If it's for a capital campaign, we may dig out the... uh, the story of the widow's might, um, because we want to talk about giving above and beyond the usual, about sacrificial giving. Uh, Spoiler alert, that is not at all what that story is about. And when we do talk about money and possessions from the pulpit or from the platform, I discover it's rarely the way that Jesus talks about money and possessions, even when we're talking about a text where Jesus is talking about money and possessions. I'm thinking uh, about this time when Jesus says, uh, give, give, give without expectation of return. And we often say from the pulpit or from the platform, give, and here's exactly what you can expect in return for your gift to the church. In fact, we can produce pie charts to show you the distribution of your gifts by ministry area, so you'll know exactly what you're getting with your gifts. In fact, if we're honest, because we're truth tellers, um, the church as a nonprofit organization really is our dirty little secret, right? Because every other, every other nonprofit that I give money to says at the bottom when I get my receipt at the end of the year to show the IRS, no tangible goods or services were received in exchange for this donation. I'm not sure how that's we function in the church because we promise this is what you're going to get when we give. We have a great children's program for you. We have a great youth program for you. Why do so many of us 
find it hard to talk about money the way that Jesus talks about money, or at least as often. I think one of the reasonable reasons for that is because, in all fairness, the critique many of us as pastors and preachers here is, you're always talking about money. You always want my money. The church has always got its hand in my pocket wanting more. So we say, well, we won't talk about money so much. Um, some of us don't talk about money so much because our churches have no financial issues whatsoever. Can I get an amen from anyone in this room? Probably not. I wonder if we don't talk about these stories in the way that I think Jesus presents what he's teaching like that because we've just, they're so familiar to us that we just fail to see how uncompromising Jesus is when it comes to wealth and resources. Uh, we fail to notice just how shocking what Jesus says is. I mean, these stories really should mess us up. I mean, when we listened to what was just said, did you hear what Jesus is saying? Did that just give you a pause for a minute? Like, no, he didn't just, no, I misread that, surely. Because when it comes to questions of eternal significance, when it comes to questions of salvation, of heaven and hell, the gospel according to Luke declares plainly, it's the economy, stupid. Actually, that's not, that phrase isn't found in the gospel of Luke. <laughs> that phrase uh, first found its way, for those of us who haven't lived in, under Bill Clinton's presidential run back in the early 90s, uh, that phrase came out of uh, his uh, campaign manager who wanted to keep the message of the campaign on target. If anyone wants to talk about the presidential campaign, don't forget, it's the economy, stupid. That's what we're talking about. Everything else is details. That reality is still very much in view in this presidential cycle. The economy is very important. And there is no question that for millions of Americans, the economy that they find themselves part of right now is very different from the economy of Bill Clinton's era. And that economy is not working so well for them anymore. They grew up with the American dream, with the promise of America that as long as you work hard, pay attention in school, show up to work on time, pass the drug test, your life will be good. You'll be able to experience the life that we sell you during the commercial breaks between your favorite TV shows. And what's more, your children will have an even better life than you have. That has been true from the 1950s until this generation when suddenly that is no longer true and people are in pain because of that reality. People are feeling the pain of broken promises and shattered dreams and not having what they want to pass on to their kids, not seeing their kids achieve what they hoped for. And any politician then can tap into that pain and promise a return to the good old days will gain their attention and probably their support. Another spoiler alert, these are the good old days. Just wait and see. Every generation, these are the good old days what we're living right now, we'll look back and we will look at this and say, oh, do you remember when? That's the way the world is supposed to work. That's the promise of the American dream. That's the promise of this economy. Because it is the economy, stupid. But what economy? Or rather, whose economy? Jesus lived in an economy that worked very well 
for a very small section of society. Everybody else was just one broken limb, one accident, one crop failure, one disease away from utter catastrophe. So Jesus told a lot of stories about wealth and about work, stories like this one, and I want us just to walk around in it just for a little bit this evening together. Just before this, we discovered that the Pharisees have been showing up when Jesus is teaching. They're keeping, uh, teaching. They're keeping a very wary eye on him because he, like them, is a teacher of Torah and they want to vet his credentials and make sure he's in line with what you should be teaching as one claiming to represent the God of Israel. And what really irks them about Jesus is not what he says. It's about who he eats with. It's his dining companions. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus says, okay, let me, let me tell you a story. In fact, let me tell you three stories. And he begins to tell these stories about things that were lost and then things that get found. And then it seems that he turns his attention to the disciples in this story. But we know that the Pharisees are still listening uh, because when the story's over, it says that the Pharisees scoffed at what Jesus says because they were, as Luke says, lovers of money. Now, this parable uh, that Jesus tells, this story, is drawn from everyday life. Jesus is not one for esoteric, ultra-spiritual stories. He is rooted very much in the everyday life of people. And he describes a situation that everybody listening would have understood, no matter their standing in society. Because he's describing the way the world works when it comes to money and wealth. And first century Greco-Roman culture is not that much different from 21st century American culture or European culture. When it comes to money, it is very much quid pro quo. You do this, and I will do this. You do that, and I will do that. So this guy manages a rich person's estate, Jesus says. Or more accurately, he mismanages his estate. Maybe he's even skimming a little off the top for himself. And uh, his boss starts hearing rumors in the marketplace about what the manager's doing, and so he shows up and demands to see the books. And this guy knows that he is totally busted. And he starts to panic. And as often happens in Luke's gospel, he begins to have a conversation with himself, which is usually a sign that the guy's in real big trouble. He's not talking to other people, he's not talking to God, he's talking to himself. And he says, what am I going to do? And he looks down and he sees his nicely manicured nails and he sees his soft skin thanks to the weekly trips to the salon that he gets from the money he's skimming off the top of his boss's income. He says, I am not about to start digging ditches for a living. And you know what? I'm not about to begin to consider lowering myself to beg on street corners with a sign, poorly written with whatever Sharpie I could find. I'm not going to start stopping people downtown and asking them for loose change. I've got to find somewhere to live, and I've got to find some way of securing my future. What am I going to do? And he starts going through all these ideas, and suddenly, bing, the light bulb comes on. And he says to himself, I know what I'll do. And this plan begins to form in his mind. And he congratulates himself on his economic savvy. When the boss kicks me out, these guys 
are going to welcome me into their homes. And so one by one, he calls in the people who owe his boss money. And what does he ask them? How much do you owe my master? Which kind of suggests why he might be mismanaging the estate if he has to ask that question, right? <laughs> and each one tells him the amount of the loan. And he says, why don't we just write in half that amount? Here, quickly do that. There it is. Now these uh, are some pretty big numbers. You know, 100 vats of olive oil, 100 measures of wheat. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything to us. From what I understand, these kind of debts represent someone who had at least property, like at least 25 times the size of the average family farm for people who owned their own land. Like these are significant debts that the manager is writing down. And he's uh, saying, you know, if I do this, they really will be glad to receive me into their homes because I've just saved them a ton of money. Um, in forgiving that debt, he's also doing something very important. He is making himself their patron. And now they have to reciprocate in some form, which is going to be, well, yeah, you can come and be part of my household because basically you've paid the rent for yourself for the next 100 years. Yeah. Quid pro quo, patron, client. You've done this for me, I'll do that for you. And the master knows this too. So when he sees the amended bills and goes, you've done what? He also praises his dishonest estate manager because he has acted shrewdly, Jesus says. Because he understands the way the world really works and he's done it to his advantage. And I'm sure as the owner of the property is down at the local wine bar that night with his cronies telling this story, at the end he says, you know what? I still, I gotta hand it to the guy. He knows how the system works. And they all have a good chuckle. And then his accountant says, you know what, this whole loss, it's gonna be a tax write-off. And in fact, you may actually come out ahead anyway. And they congratulate themselves on their economic savvy and because they have access to the capital in the system, it all works for them. And they toast each other while the manager moves his stuff out of his former home and into his new home. End of story. I can picture the disciples nodding and going, yep, Jesus, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much how it works. Way to go, manager. And I can picture Jesus nodding and going, yeah. And it is infuriating. And Levi goes, wait, what? What's infuriating? That the children of this age understand how the world works and use it to their advantage. But you guys... The children of light, the children of the age to come, you still don't understand the ways of the kingdom of God. It's the economy, stupid. And seeing the blank looks on his disciples' faces, Jesus drops the bombshell. I'm telling you, you have got to make friends with dishonest wealth also, just like the manager did. But not so they'll receive you into their homes here, but so that they will receive you into the eternal home. Drops the mic. The big question is, for the disciples and for us, is who exactly are we supposed to make friends with, with our dishonest wealth, as Jesus describes it? Based on what has come before in Luke's gospel, I think the answer is pretty clear. It's the materially poor. In Luke's gospel, it is the poor, Jesus says, who I have come 
to preach the gospel to. It is the poor who are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It is the poor to whom we are to give when they ask us. It is the poor from whom we do not need to expect repayment, and in fact, Jesus says, from whom we should not expect repayment. Give to the poor, Jesus says, and your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High, children of the light, children of the age to come, children of the kingdom of God. And you will receive back good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And then to really double down on on this for the disciples, when he sends them out on mission, he says, make yourselves poor. Don't take any extra supplies. And see who will receive you into their homes. Make friends with the poor, Jesus says, that they may receive you into an eternal home. Just think about that for a minute. As I work out my salvation, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Jesus says, whatever resources I have need to be at the disposal of my neighbors like Phyllis. And he seems to be suggesting that contrary to popular culture, it is not St. Peter who will welcome me at the pearly gates. It's Phyllis and Steve and Mr. Witt and Linda and Ben and Victor. And that guy on the street corner with the battered street sign that the words are all blurred because it's been raining and he doesn't make eye contact and he's mumbling to himself. They are the ones, Jesus seems to be saying, who will receive us into the eternal homes. Now, I imagine if any of you are like me, you're already pushing back, saying, but Sean, this isn't just about any poor person. I mean, Jesus is talking about caring for the poor among us, you know, our brothers and sisters in Christ, caring for the church. Um, And anyway, you know, isn't giving money to people like that enabling them? I mean, they're probably just going to use it on drugs or alcohol. Um, And, uh, you know, I I watched a YouTube video once, and, you know, there was someone begging for money, and then they got in a Mercedes and drove away. Um, No, we shouldn't be giving like that. And we could have a very interesting and meaningful conversation about those kinds of thoughts that come to mind when we hear these kinds of things that Jesus says, not least of which, why is that the first place we go when we hear what Jesus says? Why is it we don't want to hear what Jesus says and we instantly find reasons not to take Jesus literally, but to find a loophole? And it's because I think we are more invested like the disciples, in the way things really work and not in the age to come. We're not acting like children of light. We're not seeking the kingdom of God. We're just reacting out of the economy that has us captivated in our minds to the way things work. Because that way of thinking comes right out of the quid pro quo economy. But Jesus says that the children of the light don't belong to that economy. Jesus doesn't seem to indicate that it's a certain kind of poor person we should give to, someone who is worthy of our friendship, perhaps. Jesus just says, give without expectation of return to your enemies. Kind of sounds to me like those who welcome us, hopefully, into our eternal home are those whom Jesus received gladly when he sat down to eat with them which earned the disdain and ultimately 
worse from the Pharisees, the guardians of the way things are in Israel, of how life ought to work. What if our entrance into the eternal dwellings, the kingdom of God, when it comes in its fullness, is not determined by whether I prayed a certain prayer or not, by what, but by what I have done with my dishonest wealth. What if Jesus really means that? What if it really is the economy stupid? Even Jesus isn't afraid to use that word. Shortly before this, he tells another story about a certain rich man whom God says, fool, stupid. Even though everything that the person in that story did was perfect economic sense, maximizing his resources, increasing his market share, but at the expense of the poor who were his neighbors. Fool, God says, it's about the economy, fool. But which economy? Ultimately, it's about the two economies competing for our allegiance all the time. It's either the quid pro quo economy of the first century and the militant consumer capitalism of the 21st century, economies that are based in scarcity, that there is not enough to go around, so you need to get yours and hold on to it, and make sure no one takes it away from you. An economy that works very well for some people, not so well for many, if not most others. That's one economy competing for our allegiance. And then there's God's economy. An economy not based in scarcity, but an economy based in abundance. That there is enough for all, because this is God's world. It's all God's stuff, and God has given us all what we need to live. It's the economy of creation, a world overflowing with life, overflowing with abundance, so that there is enough for everything and everyone that God creates, that God calls good, and that God loves. It's the economy of manna in the wilderness, when you go out to get your food in the morning and it doesn't matter if you collect too much, more than you need, or not enough for what you need. At the end of the day, everybody has exactly what they need. And if you hoard it, man, it just turns into worms. It's the economy of Sabbath where we dare to stop our frantic activity for one day in seven as God invites us to to stop trying to secure our future for ourselves with our endless activity. It's that economy. It's the economy of the kingdom of God, where thousands are invited to sit down on a hillside, no matter who's pure and who's impure and ritually clean and not. They all sit down in the presence of Jesus. And a little boy shares his lunch, and what do you know? There's more than enough, and in fact, there's baskets of leftovers left over for the disciples to take home so that they can maybe learn this lesson because it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy my friend Claudio in Curitiba, Brazil, talks about all the time and who embodies in his own life, in his own neighborhood. The economy he describes in his little tiny booklet called Relationality. 
Claudio says, we need to end the war on poverty because the poor don't need a war and they don't need programs. They don't need charity. What the poor need are friends. Friends with resources. Because friends don't let their friends' kids go hungry. Friends don't let their friends sleep outside when they have a dry roof to sleep under themselves. Friends don't let their friends get kicked out of their apartment for being 12 bucks short of rent at the end of the week when they have 12 bucks to share. Friends don't make their friends catch three buses and spend two hours to get to the clinic to get their feet looked at when they have a car and time on their hands. You get what I'm saying. My friends, <laughs> my brothers and sisters, with whom are you and I making friends with our dishonest wealth? Wealth that Jesus suggests will have no place in the age to come. This is the only time we get to do what Jesus says we need to do with it. Sell your possessions, Jesus says, and give to the poor. Make yourselves purses which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will your time be also. There will your resources be also. There will be everything you have also. And then this is the thing I do not want to say tonight because this is the word from me. Don't be anxious for your life, Jesus says. Consider the ravens. Consider the lilies. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. The economies of Egypt and Babylon and Rome and consumer capitalism run on that anxiety, on that worry, on that fear. But your father knows that you need those things. So seek the kingdom, and all those things will be added to you. Manna in the wilderness. Bread on the hillside. Potlucks in the neighborhood. The family meal. Those of you who are pastors and leaders in your church, many of you spend a lot of time worrying about the financial health of your church. Perhaps you inherited a building that the children of the people who built it can no longer afford to sustain. You keep burying your biggest givers. We're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, and Peter's purse is wearing out. And all the experts are only telling us that it's just going to keep getting worse. Because the way the world works is based on an economy of scarcity. But what if there's another economy available to us? What if God really doesn't care what the experts say about the way things really are? What if the church has a future that, as St. Bono of you too might say, has to be believed to be seen. What if you and I are being invited to imagine a world where people who should not be friends become friends and in doing so begin to share their resources with each other because friends don't let friends. Friends 
who should not be friends. That's my working definition of reconciliation, the ministry we have all been given, reconciliation, unlikely friendships. Can you and I imagine a world where the rich and the poor discover together and rejoice that God has indeed given us this day our daily bread? It's just not evenly distributed yet. There is enough for all. And if Dorothy Day is right, when I walk into my closet and I see two pairs of shoes, I have to ask, whose shoes do I have? What if this meal that we are about to share together is an invitation to imagine that kind of friendship, to imagine that kind of church, to imagine that kind of world? God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May our imaginations be overflowing as we come to this table to share in the family meal and be reminded that there is enough for all. There is enough for all. Make friends with dishonest wealth. Amen.